We were asking, or another protester was asking what happened last night, and he was just like, you know, what we actually found out is that we only had to start tear gassing people because two people had AR-15s. And I'm like, that's really crazy, because I saw, like, a whole gang of white people on a Capitol with guns just out the ass, and nobody got tear gassed. The blackness. blackness. Keep the game on. Capital with Chelsea Higgs Wise, Kalia Harris, and me, Naomi Isaac, where we interrogate racial narratives in the former capital of the Confederacy, right here in Richmond, Virginia. This week, I invited my radio partners and opened up by asking them what they had been seeing in the federal, state, and local level narratives. This past week, there's uprisings in all 50 states. The largest uprising in modern history. Um, of Black folks coming out um, in support of justice for Black lives, in honor of George Floyd and also people across the country who have died at the hands of police violence. Um, And I think what's really curious about that is that the states in which these killings are happening are blue states, purple states, places where we wouldn't necessarily think that people would hold on to 45's narrative, what we've been seeing in the mainstream media, the militarization, the blatant racism. But instead, what we are seeing is that these folks are essentially generals of Trump's war on Black people. And so I think it's important for us to dig into why we're seeing Black mayors like Mayor Stoney waging a war on his Black residents where he's bringing in the National Guard, lining the streets as we speak, where there's police that have been yanking people out of their cars, and hundreds of people have been arrested. That's what we've seen here in Richmond and across the country. I think for me especially, what I'm seeing is a lot of re-election campaigns. And on a national level, that's Democratic people trying to uh, appease Black folks by caring about Black lives, in some capacity that's watered down. And then here in Richmond, that's Stoney trying to pander to white folks and make sure that he's being uh, tough on law and order. And so I'm just seeing a lot of folks being very opportunistic about the death and continued killings of black people um, in order to, to get in office and actually not do anything for the black community, you know? So it's just really disingenuous to watch these people get up on here, give us their condolences for the 50th time. Um, when they have all the power to change the conditions that Black folks are living with um, right now. They have all the power to defund the police department, to disarm the police department. 
they have all the power to fix the things that are killing us and it, all they have to answer is a sorry so i'm just you know looking at it analyzing it and seeing that all these photo ops are just good opportunities for the election uh, season and nothing more than that i think we even see it with uh, 45 himself and that's why he's been more tough on crime um in, in the coming weeks uh, because he's still trying to recover from the disaster that has been him handling with the coronavirus pandemic and now uh it's just black people um black people are being used as pawns being used as chess pieces in a, in a long game between the GOP and the, the D Democrats and folks who really are just power hungry. Um, also just like the performative support that we're seeing in the community as well. People posting blackout photos that haven't said a thing about black issues to begin with for the past three years. Um, just people, you know, posting hashtag Black Lives Matter and acting like that's enough to change, again, the conditions, the serious and dangerous conditions that Black Americans are faced with at this point in time. It's just, I'm just seeing a lot of performativeness, a lot of folks capitalizing off our pain um, in order to, to promote themselves and enhance their status. And it's really isolating, I would say, just as a Black person, I felt so much isolation from the entire world um, right now, from the entire nation right now, just because it, it doesn't feel like our humanity is really being celebrated. It doesn't feel like it's really being advocated for. It feels like we are being used for a press conference. And as we can see here in Richmond, that has been the case. What I'm seeing is that people are not identifying the same strategy we use to fund a lot of like defensive and military pieces of our government and internationally people are like why do we do have so much government defensive spending but that same type of spending happens when you deploy armed forces and it goes back to the capitalist narrative that's never been great for us and when this happened what i watched because to me being so close to this i understand that it's not just you, you can't do something so if someone is really moved to do something and they're an elected official there are actually many things they have the power to do so when this happened i saw what 45 was doing i was like oh wow this makes sense um, I saw what Governor Northam was doing. He was happy to take the request from LeVar Stoney, who requested for the state of emergency. And then I saw LeVar Stoney do a press conference at the reconciliation statue, not with a piece of legislation that he wanted to propose, not with a resolution, not with coming saying, I called organizers, I called Princess Blanding, the sisters of Marcus David Peters. I've I've had the phone calls that I've been avoiding the last two years or my entire administration. No, no, no. I'm going to do what I always do, which is a press conference by the reconciliation statue. And with the same old people that I always stand with. And it, it just, to me, showed, I was like, oh, wow, we're going to still play this game. And that's why it's really interesting to me the way that public officials moved in this particular crisis. Um, and and this shift of culture to me, it, it showed everything and how our leaders, our organizers, our people across the board um, are reacting. Yeah, not to mention the fact that, um, like you're saying, Chelsea, it, it is a lot of money that you get in these state of emergencies. We were just 
asking for support with the coronavirus, we get one stimulus check that folks may have gotten, may not have gotten, but the moment that Mayor Stoney picks up the phone to call Northam, oh, hey, can I have money for the military to line the streets? There's money out of the blue sky. But our black people, when we need COVID-19 testing, they close down our sites rather than actually help us during a pandemic. So that's what I want answers for. Right, and I feel like people just really aren't understanding the depths of the anger. Like they're mad because they think it's a little bad to kill black people. But it's like, it's not even to that extent. It's like, there's so many other things. Like I'm not only mad about the killing of black people, I'm mad about the way that they make it intentional when they do things like not call in for extra support during a coronavirus pandemic, but call in for the National Guard, like you were saying, because when people are protesting over being shot by the police, like it's just, in people aren't angry enough for me. That's also just one thing that I'm seeing. They're just not angry enough for me. They, they aren't understanding the depths of the tragedy and the trauma for real, for real. Like they don't understand like that every black person I know right now is in pain. And if I call them any black person I know on any given day, they probably have cried. So like at, at any point this week. And so I don't think people actually understand like how traumatic this point in time is for black people, how stressful it is, how we are supporting so many people, not only in the community, but in our own families. And like, this is what our administration is dedicating resources and time and energy to. And it's only so that they can get reelected next year. Like that is how angry, that's the context of why I am so angry. If you see me in the streets, I'm livid because there's just so much that is happening right now that is bull. I don't know if I can say that. Because I was just tying it back to the way that Mayor Stoney is discussing George Floyd when there's still injustices and Black people who are, like, facing systemic racism from the RPD right now, including himself. So he's like, I don't really want to hear what Mayor Stoney has to say about Minneapolis right now. I want to hear what he has to say about Richmond, Virginia. And Richmond has a history of that. So Black political history in Richmond is only... 44 years old. Black people have only had power in politics in Richmond for 44 years. 1977 is when we had the first majority Black city council. And many people, because people are still alive from back then, call what happened after that with Black power in Richmond the Marsh Effect. The Marsh Effect is Henry Marsh was elected and was one of the people elected to city council, went on to mayor, but what we hear from our elders is that he went and left many of the other working class housing organizers that helped with the historic federal case that stopped all of our elections for years. In fact, Richmond has the record for the most, the longest moratorium on elections in the freaking nation because we were so racist. In 1970, a housing organizer went and filed a federal complaint because Richmond City annexed half of Chesterfield into Richmond City in order to dilute the black vote. And then after that, the Supreme Council said, we're still gonna allow them to annex. And Richmond, Virginia was split into nine wards. And it was supposed to be half white, half black and a neutral one. And that is how Richmond City votes. Well, now in 2020, it's not just black and white and what they've done with mixed communities and gentrification. It's no longer black 
neighborhoods, white neighborhoods, it's all middle-class white neighborhoods and no longer working-class poor people neighborhoods at all to the point where they don't have anywhere to live. And that's where we are today. And that was created per our elders because of the Marsh effect. Marsh was elected, he had all this power, but what never went away was the overlying Virginia Commonwealth white power structure in Richmond and the money. Just because we had a black face elected, they still needed money, they wanted the power and they aligned right with white corporate interests that have always had an interest in our body as labor and very low, cheap or free labor by that. And so what's happened in Richmond over the 44 years, which is not a long amount of time, is that we have been run by black capitalists that see property as more valuable than life. And that is the legacy of Richmond as being the number two port of the downriver domestic slave trade after this transatlantic slave trade was no longer legal, right? We started to just breed our own enslaved people and sell them downriver. That's what we did here in Richmond, Virginia. And that's how we got all of our money and all of our wealth. And in order to protect that, they said, oh, well, civil rights happened. And then the Voting Rights Act happened. And they're like, oh my gosh, all these black people are going to vote. Let's annex Chesterfield. And then they're like, oh my goodness, now we need to mix up the, the wards so that we dilute the black vote that way. And here we are still protecting white money, white wealth with black faces. And that's why it's important to understand that it's no longer just black and white, that you have to look deeper into the narratives and understand the history of your space, place, and time. Yeah, I would say it's it's also like the white folks that are organizing here, not knowing the history of where we're, where we're at. Um, and we saw that in some of the analysis of, you know, 50% of folks are outsiders from Richmond. Well, like you're saying, Chelsea, you know, Black folks live in Chesterfield, we live in Henrico. Um, So when you're looking at analysis, you know, statistics like that, you really have to think about what that means. No, thank you, Kalia, for bringing that up, because so many people I've talked to that are really energized and charged and are also Black are come from the counties because they've been pushed out the cities. They have a family. They can't afford to live in Richmond City, but absolutely, they're and all of them were born in Richmond, went to school in Richmond, and have moved out to the county in order to have a space, to have a yard, and, and just to maybe have that quote-unquote life of what we've always been told, right? But mostly because people can't afford here in Richmond. So that whole idea of the outsiders is also a, a really interesting narrative because for so long, Richmond no, wanted all of the outsiders to come in in order to dilute Black wealth, Black votership, Black home ownership, I mean, Black community organizing. We're policed in Chesterfield, right? Arrest a field. Um, one of the highest rates of school to prison pipeline arrest rates in the nation is in Chesterfield. So yeah they're only talking about who came as a protester and I think we need to interrogate who were the outside instigators from the cops. I think it's really important to also just talk about or analyze like the way that black folks all have been so in in the city of Richmond have been so terrorized by the white power structure by this point we are so willing and like ready to want to trust in our black elected officials and just like willing to deny the fact that liberation doesn't always look like sharing the same skin because that doesn't mean we share the same end goal we're not sharing the same vision and so yeah i just think it's really really interesting when you look at the way that these people are so attached and cannot let go of these black people who are continually failing us on a policy level 
um, at every chance that they get, continually selling us over to these corporations at every chance that they get. For us to look at that, we have to also examine just the mass terror that has been, the mass failure that has been the white political structure as well. And I talked a little bit about this with my friend earlier, was that um, it actually, you have to lose trust in these people, right? Like, I remember when that was shattered for me, where I thought that only white elected officials were the ones doing me harm. And then I moved back to Richmond and saw black electeds and realized that the same things were happening. And so that trust was lost. And for us to, for you to have trust in someone, you have to be trustworthy. And so for our elected officials to not be trustworthy, that's something we have to teach our young folks that we don't have to trust everyone just because they look like us. We have to trust folks that are doing things that help us, that are taking actions, not just words. And I think that's a real big lesson. And it's something to learn really fast here on the ground. It, it was definitely something I was talking about today, which is just like people would say, you know, we can't ask for X, Y, Z because, uh, you know, that's, that obviously hasn't worked up until this point. You know, I'm like, well, everything that you're doing, all the tactics, all the mindsets that you've adopted that the white and black capitalist power structure have conditioned you to adopt also have not gotten us any closer to freedom. So I'm going to stand here and make my demands, you know what I'm saying? Like, just just telling people that they really need to elevate their demands and like teaching people that they can't accept when the power structure tells you that the way that you are holding them accountable is violent or the way that you are holding them accountable is unproductive. Think on why they are spending the energy like coming at your tactics is because it's getting their attention. Uh, it's getting their attention. And that's, that's why they want to put some kind of restriction on it and um, just discourage people from from living that truth, from living in that power. And so I didn't really just driving home that we have to demand more. We don't got time to wait no more. We don't got time to wait for them to make their promises just to break them. People are dying. Yeah, I think that has to do with a, a trust as well, like a trust in our own voice. Like so many people were ready to discount mm. us as well, right? And we're not even taught to look for other people that are doing the work to learn from in these moments. I do. I believe that's part of our trauma being in the United States where we were forced here. I understand that pushback, but it's just another mindset that it's not just that we have to lose trust and grieve this representative, you know, diversity, have your face at the table when we realize that that's not actually how it works with capitalism. Because it's not just racism, right? And I really hate with all these politicians and their statements, it's like, I'm calling out racism. And I'm like, mm, but I need you to call it out in police. I need you to call it out in the economy. I need, because it's never, it was never only about racism. They used racism in order to build their wealth. It was always intersectional with the economy. And if we don't understand how now using a police state to protect the economy by protecting property, we didn't have the National Guard come when the black lives was, was lost and we needed to protect black people. It was, it came when we needed to protect property. And that's why it's so important for them to push a narrative of protect small black businesses. How could you do this to small black businesses? Well, if we had invested properly in public sector, no matter what businesses, including black businesses, would have been able to come back from something like this because we would have had enough money to put back into our city after something like this had happened. But because we've disinvested and privatized everything, 
and the scrappy hustle kind of life was not meant for small businesses. And that started in the Nixon era, right? And it was continued in Reagan. And it's still continued with the Democrats that are moderate. And people don't understand that. They don't, they don't know that many of the Republicans that were like, oh, you all got too super Jesus freak when the Tea Party came, just came to the Democrats. So we just got some former Republicans running the Democratic Party. And these are not necessarily your Kennedy, you know, folks that your grandma talks about. And it's important to get that history when we're talking about what you demand, right, Naomi? Because then you have to demand not just the, the policy, but also the budget to cover the policy. You know, a lot of folks today didn't even know where our capital was. They didn't know the right. Patrick Henry. They didn't know where the Patrick Henry building was. I asked, you didn't know that it wasn't in the mayor's power authority to drop the charges. When, when I told you that, I was like the Commonwealth attorney. And then they're like, well, who is that? That's McKeachin. They're like, what is his name? Also, it's actually a woman. And so. Sorry, that just brings two things to mind because I really, when we talk about like trust and also the duality that black women and uh, non-masculine people have to face just to be trusted and believed in the movement that we could really have, you know, folks, women who have been doing this work, black women who have been doing this work for years, getting chastised. Uh, because they were doing pro providing community support last night instead of being out at the protest. They were organizing things to make things happen. And it's like now people coming at our necks because they feel more confident and trusting black men, whether it's black elected officials or even like black men who are new to black liberation movement. Like they feel more empowered by their words than people who actually not only know the policy, not only know the strategy, not only know the organizing, not only know the history, but have been here week after week after week, month after month after month, year after year. And so, um, that just really bothers me. And then I wanted to talk on another thing about just people not knowing and like being uninformed uh, and then coming out here and having such a loud voice. It, it really dilutes the message because I think whether it be white folks who are organizing uh, to show some kind of solidarity with black people and they just don't know enough, like Kalia was saying, or whether it just be black people who are impassioned, but don't know enough about other, you know, intersectionalities in our impression to really speak on it in the way that's going to help us in our demands. It's just like, they don't understand that this George Floyd situation in Richmond, we're not going up just for George Floyd, like we're going up for Marcus David Peters. And it's like, to have to have told so many people that today, like, come on, y'all, we are out here because the mayor has the audacity to be speaking on something that happens states away when he still is not giving the decent respect to the community and the family to deal with the injustices that happen here with Marcus David Peters. And he still does not address the way that the Richmond Police Department continually enacts harm in every system in this city, whether it be education, housing, or just us being in the streets. And so people not having that understanding and and then still feeling like still feeling like the the voices who don't have that understanding are more relevant just because they're masculine presenting that's just a whole other thing that we don't get the time to talk to talk about often um or it's not elevated on the media often through like black you know what i'm saying so it's just like i don't know just making that connection as to why things felt so chaotic today or overwhelming it's just like it, there was a lot of silencing from unexperienced masculine presences from unexperienced like men who who felt like their voice mattered than the black women who actually do the work and uh we just gonna have to deal with that for real
th this city has a real problem with accepting black women's leadership the way that it should be because all the black women especially the black women organizers i know are on it you know they're they're here every single day they're at every single protest they're at every single city hall meeting they're tapped into every organization that's actually making things move and it's still we had a situation where you know because somebody wasn't at one protest they they're not a real activist come on don't play with me like that for those just tuning in or not knowing the full history this is chelsea i was um criticized for not being at the protest on Monday night where people were gassed. So that's what we were kind of talking about. And, um, you know, it, it's just part of being black and femme. And to be real, like when that happened, I could so many, so much support came in cause it was live streaming on all the media. Um, but honestly, y'all, I have been so torn apart economically and through my life, through the power structure of Stoney and these corporations, specifically recently through the Navy Hill battle, and then before that through Blackface and Coon Man Northam, when I spoke out, like people don't know actually how hard my life has taken a strike. And so today actually was nothing. Like cis men that are uninformed coming at me was just like, okay. Well, yes, but it's like, I, I know uh, what my partner is here and witnessed that like cis, uh, cis men were like talking over me all day. It was like, so like, you know, like, oh my God, this is so crazy that they would do that. And it's just crazy that you almost don't even notice it as a black woman or a black femme organizer. At the, like you just learn to let it roll off your shoulder because people do it routinely. And like that should never, that shouldn't be the case. It's why we have so much misdirection because so many voices are being silenced in our own community and people aren't actually committed to like unlearning that harmful white supremacist type thinking. So why don't we back up and tell the listeners what happened on Monday during the day, June 1st, before the protesters were gassed that night at the monument. Mayor Stoney held a press conference, which was originally supposed to happen the day before at the reconciliation statue. Uh, he decided to postpone it. We had a huge car rally, on foot rally at the reconciliation statue, as well as a people's press conference with Princess Blanding. And then the next day, Mayor Stoney has his press conference. He brings up the police chief as the closing act. He's surrounded by all of these uh, Black folks. And Chelsea, you know, you're, you're interacting with them the whole time, because I'm watching it on Facebook Live. And you're interacting with them. Um, and it comes to the point where there's an opportunity to get the microphone and to speak. Uh, and J.J. Minor the president of the NAACP here, this is just from what I saw, took the microphone. So silencing you and your opportunity to, to be heard. And it was really hard for me to understand why he would do that because the NAACP is supposed to be a voice for empowering black people. And he did everything in his power to protect the power structure and I just couldn't understand why that was something that happened. Well, that's also why it's important to know the players, right? And so a lot of new people organizing, um, 
and clear you by no means are new, right? And so it's hard to know all of these people is what we're saying. But JJ Minor is the president of the Richmond NAACP. He's also the son of Dolores McQuinn, who is a delegate in the House of Delegates right here in Virginia. And so she was also there. You usually will see them as a, with a, in a pair along with Superintendent Jason Cameras and Mayor LaVar Stoney. Um, anytime they kind of talk about history, they bring this brigade out and talk about Black folks. But it's very rare that you're seeing these same folks out with the people. And that is the problem is that the NAACP here, and it's chapter by chapter. And unfortunately, here in the capital of the Confederacy, our NAACP chapter is also highly funded and run by the same corporate power structure that is donated to our administration. And that is why, and if you look more into J.J. Minor, you can find his history about splitting the Richmond City Democratic Committee back in 2016 when the committee didn't vote the way he wanted to when he was the chair and he stomped out and made a big scene. I mean, he is semi-known as, he has a reputation, let's just put it that way. Um, so it was not surprising to me that when I was invited up to the stage to take the mic that J.J. Minor stepped in front of me and pulled the mic away again, as Kalia said, silencing me. So this is just, this is two days in a row. And this is just the life and I live as a black woman activist, but you know, fine. I just want to talk about the fact that the mayor and his administration, um, his little team, they have been talking so much over the past couple of days, talking over the community, basically taking up so much space to just talk. And what have they actually said? that is going to lead to them meeting our material demands? Like, what have they actually said that gives us a promise or a commitment to change something in the near future other than an I'm sorry, which doesn't give us uh, any commitment that anything's gonna change. Um, it's just like they've been taking up so much space in the public eye when there's so many other people who have been affected, not only by the George Floyd situation, uh, but by the Marcus David Peters situation and by coronavirus and the way that the city is just evicting people left and right or has been evicting people left and right over uh, this past year. And so it's just like, he's been taking up so much space to talk about a lot of nothing, silencing community members who have real demands and concerns in the process. And people still are like, let this man speak. I'm like, he has been speaking all week. He's been speaking so much. It's the most I've ever heard him say something. Well, I'll tell you when else we heard a lot from Mayor LaVar Stoney was during that Navy Hill campaign. We couldn't, we couldn't not hear from LaVar Stoney about Navy Hill and his partners over at Dominion wanting to build a huge arena for 30 years and gut our public funds. Yeah. So this is this is our problem, right? It's like when we hear from you, it's the wrong time with the wrong message. And I will say that it came out um, yesterday that the city council is in favor of the Marcus Alert, as well as the Civilian Review Board, I believe. And Councilman Jones is going to be doing the Marcus, um, the Marcus Alert. And Councilwoman Lynch is going to be proposing the Civilian Review Board. Now, this is hopeful. And what the point of this is, is that they have to continue to meet with the family, as well as with the organizers that have been doing the data and, and are connected to these services and the policies, right? These are not simple things to change. And so it's going to be important that we connect all of the systems to do this the right way. 
because we are doing a culture shift. It's not just a one-line policy, y'all. We are really working to shift policing to more community control. And we know here in the capital of the Confederacy, we've been talking about capitalism and the economy. Community control means community money. And if we want our money out of policing and maybe in more programs and mental health and, and roads and jobs and schools and counselors, then that's how we do this, actually, is we defund white supremacy. And in Minneapolis, I just read, um, maybe not even an hour ago, that the Minneapolis uh, schools voted unanimously to divest from the MPD. And so if we want justice for George Floyd and the city is like trying to act as if they're really committed to that, if we want justice for George Floyd, then they should be looking towards ways that they can defund the RPD. Because we can see now that it is possible and that it has happened and it's happened very quickly. So like, what is all the time that they need? What, how much more thinking do they need? What else do they have to plan up? They're, they're talking about justice for George Floyd and they, not, they really not gonna bring up our education system or the need to just get more money, less money into the, the policing, the over-policing of black folks and our black kids that they decided to tear gas the other night and, and put more into the school system. This is real, these are real intangible demands that we can start making now. We don't need to wait until the next election. We don't need to wait for another half-assed apology from LaVar Stoney and whoever else. We don't need to wait to get these things. People are demanding what is necessary and they're seeing the returns come in. And so it's time for Richmond to get on that wave. Yes, so some really exciting things that I would love to share with folks is that Senator Hashmi here in Richmond and she covers in RICO as well, is looking to propose that we cancel contracts with police and public safety for schools. And that was something that she reached out to some organizers with and to talk about. I'm really excited for that type of support, as well as Senator McClellan has put in an act for social workers and looking to find ways to use that act and funding to support things like the Marcus Alert. So we have state officials now that I've actually already heard from and talked to, and I still have yet to hear from my local public officials, except for Stephanie Lynch. Stephanie Lynch, I have absolutely heard from. I, um, Mike Jones, I guess, thank you for doing this. And this Marcus Alert, I hope that you are really going to work with the organizers. And the day that Marcus had a march, Mike Jones had a march with the police two years ago, okay? So we have a lot of reconciling to do here locally. And so we have to be really transparent as we move forward to make sure we do this the right way. And so I'm glad people are on board, but I wanna be really open and honest that we have to do this the best way possible for our kids to also still feel this. What we start today, they still need to feel this. My daughter, Chloe, who's six, needs to feel this in 10, 15, 20 years. And I think this really speaks to the power of the movement, right? In a time where we are going out night after night, waging battles with the police, they're ripping people out of their cars, they're leaving them in vans outside of the jail all night without water, without their medicines. You know, these are harsh conditions that people are facing, but there's results that are coming from that. There are state delegates or senators that are out here making change 
our mayor may be having half-assed promises, but we're hearing the change. So when folks are saying, why are y'all in the streets? Why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? This is why we're doing that. Because when you see fires, when you see people marching in mass, you move and you decide to do something. And so I really just, and you know, our whole lives, I feel like as organizers, we get this question of like, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? This is why we're doing it. Because we envision a world where black people can prosper, where they can live joyously, where they don't have to be over-policed, where they can go to school and be happy. We were out in the streets together happy. What does that look like when we're not begging for our humanity? That's what we're fighting for. And I just want to tie back uh, the way that, again, this in-the-street work really like the the returns that we get from the industry work really wouldn't be possible if it wasn't for the people who are working after hours as well being there to support these uh being there to support those kinds of actions and so really just want to reemphasize the fact I, I feel like i've said it all of tuesday that folks really need to get plugged into the work that is happening as well as be out in these streets like we need we need uh we need a presence on all fronts. You know, we need the people who are staying up all night, all hours of the night, organizing these actions and organizing support to get people out of jail and, and uh, whatever, whatever they need to still meet people's conditions right now during coronavirus, when we still have people who aren't getting stimulus checks, people who are out of like, who are losing hours to their work. Like we, we need to be connecting uh, these two types of presences in the movement and not shaming people just not shaming people first off, but then also just realizing that every part is really important and you can't slack on the commitment of the work. Like the work looks like being in the street and the work looks like being up all night, educating yourself on the policy, coming to the city council meetings. Like the work is very consistent. And I just have to be emphasized that like, however long this struggle lasts in terms of George Floyd, in terms of us protesting the mayor, regardless of if this is two weeks or two years, like we need people to stay consistently committed to the work, like consistent. That means you really have to, like this need to be your new nine to five. <laughs> like I see a lot of people saying they got a lot of free time. You got the whole summer. This needs to be your nine to five. If you are really hungry for justice, you need to commit to the work. Like you, you can't just kind of be here. You, we need everybody at, like, to really tune in in this moment if we really want to make, re reach our demands because without these two parts of the movement interconnecting and working together, we aren't going to get anything done but a whole lot of nothing. And we, we already got the, our local government doing that. So we want to be effective. No, you're right. And the work is not going to be as exciting as it is in the street. I'm, I'm not even gonna lie to people. Like, I read so much. I read all the time. We write all the time. We talk all the time. We literally, I mean, this is another nine to five that we just don't even get paid for. And this is a lifestyle. But it's important that you, everyone understand that it's a new commitment to a lifestyle of relearning and reconditioning. That's what a lot of folks work is going to look like for a long time is just relearning and informing yourself. 
because that's what you have to catch up on what we've been doing for the long time so that we can all speak the same language because that's the confusion that's happening. We are forgetting the history of policing. The entire authority of the police was made to control crowds. Here in the United States, it was made to control the enslaved people from uprising. Well, here's the thing. So for the youth, my thing is they were utilized today in ways that their decisions, they came together in love, right? Black joy, that radical tradition and spirit that brings us all to direct actions. Um, and the mayor took that and used it to his own advantage. He fed them empty promises and then let them get together in mass in danger because there's tanks coming. We know that our police, there's research that shows that they have bias, that they p kill people that are black, right? And so he was cool just putting all those kids in that danger. And that's my problem with it. Empty promises, and you just put kids back in the same situation that you tear gassed them in last night. Just as like a youth organizer, to me, the reason why the lack of cohesion is just really so upsetting is because like we, I can see in real time all the same mistakes being made and all the wrong things being like uh, being um, romanticized. Um, and it's just, it can be really saddening and frustrating because, you know, I am trying to visualize what transformative justice looks like in the future. When we have people who are bringing us down and bringing the conversation to the right, it's just like, okay, so am I, am I going to be on these same steps again in 20 years advocating for the same thing? That's really scary, uh, personally. Race Capital on WRIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Independent Radio. Stay tuned. I think what I'm really excited about is we saw so many Black youth from Richmond. Yes. Coming out in droves, y'all. That to me, as someone who works with youth organizers in my day job, is huge. Like, I can't wait to organize with them. I want to bring them into this work so that they know how we can really come at 12 together and abolish them. I feel like that, that is the really exciting part to just see that even once you have one conversation with someone, it's like 
once you have one one-to-one with someone and you fill them in and you're like, hey, sis, let me tell you all this tea I got on Stony, And then they start looking into the tea and then they start following Race Capital. Like, just to see, like, the potential that cohesion has as being our best weapon against white supremacy in the city, against uh, black capitalism in the city. Seeing, like, how quick people are able to turn once they're just exposed to more information and in community gives me so many thoughts and for the future and i mean this can be really scary times but like when I, when i do sit back and think on that and think okay like all of us came out regardless of how we felt we all came out imagine how we're gonna look you know in five years um with, with just more knowledge and cohesion and uh strategy work this could be really powerful if we all commit to doing the work and I just can't wait to see people really step into that role. I guess I, I like your reframing. It's not the youth's fault by any means. Like this is also another part of the institutional oppression of the way our educational system is set up and what we learn in social studies. We're not talking about the movement of black organizers. We're not learning anything except for some big marches and something in our history, right? It, this is all part of the work we all need to do in different settings. but. For us as organizers, um, I do believe it's still our privilege to have this information and this access. Um, and I, I believe it's a privilege to do this work with you all, to be for real. So, you know, my feelings aren't really hurt in all of this because I know that we are deeply rooted. And I know that many of these people that we've seen, no matter their age, race, gender, are going to come and join us. And that's beautiful. Um, so I know we always include a segment of our show, What's Your Privilege? So I wanted to ask and have us talk a little bit about our privilege as Black organizers. As organizers, as, organizers, as folks that have been in the movement. I remember when I had my first couple direct actions um, that were like this, right? Like where there's tanks, where there's militarization. Um, and that was in 2015 in Baltimore. And the folks that pulled me in, those black femmes that taught me the things that I needed to know, those are the folks that I carry with me now in these times. And so, Chelsea, when you ask, what's your privilege? I say that my privilege is having the, the knowledge and folks from the movement before us and bringing that knowledge to new folks and building a movement together because the movement for black lives is intergenerational right this struggle has been going on since we got to the shores here since they put us on the ships and brought us here we have been resisting so it's very important for us to build those intergenerational connections because that is the key to our liberation that was powerful I think when it comes to my privilege, just like as you kind of touched on, just growing up in a middle class home and having the access to good education system and parents who could afford to buy me expensive ass books that gatekeep all this knowledge. Um, just like having that kind of access uh, to, to knowledge, again, is just a privilege that not a lot of people are able to have, um, as well as like just being, being cis presenting. Sometimes people are more willing to listen to what I have to say, and that can be really powerful in, in groups of women because, like, if there's trans women around, not all the time they get to speak up if they don't necessarily appear as just presenting. So just being able to be heard in certain spaces definitely is a privilege and to be respected. And again, to be an organizer, again, is a privilege because 
people look at you with a certain weight to your voice that like community members who are sometimes more affected by the issue do not receive. And so that also is just a huge privilege to even have the time or capacity to do this work um, and be heard because of it. And Black trans women right now should be leading in this police violence brutality narrative, right? And that's something we're all, even LeVar Stoney and our championing all these black men saying as a black man black man black man also i didn't want this episode to go by without us not lifting black trans women when we're talking about a police murder and violence narrative for sure um i don't know if i touched on how i use that privilege to uh tackle white supremacy um but again i just use all the knowledge that i know to make sure that i'm not using um this knowledge again that's gatekept by uh the educational industrial complex that I'm not using that and just forwarding it and sharing it among middle class people like me. I'm using that when I go into middle class spaces with white folks, I use that knowledge to make sure that I'm informing them with anti-racism and anti-oppression and what's going on in the actual black community. Because sometimes, especially as a middle class black person, you be around white people that you're the only black person that they know. And so it's like really using like that privilege and that space to make sure that you check people on uh, not just racism, but on their commitment to anti-racism, on their commitment to anti-capitalism. I really try to use my knowledge to just, my privileges to just hold folks accountable and hold folks in community, um, in connection to what's actually happening right around them and, con and connecting them to folks. As hard as this week has been, I couldn't imagine doing this episode any other way without my radio partners. So thank you for joining me, Kalia, Naomi. Thanks for having us. It's been a blast. Yes, thanks for taking the time out to talk with us, Chels, um, and just everyone for listening during such crazy times and so much is happening and so many people aren't getting sleep. So I just appreciate being able to be in community with people and that anyone would take the time out of such hectic, their hectic schedule right now to take the time to listen to us. And if you're looking for how to learn more about us, you can go to our website at www.racecapital.com. And we also have a Patreon. Money, money. So tune back in next week right here at Race Capital at WRIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Independent Radio. Presidents overseas predatory like they war and killing Latin babies. If it's a ball, then I think they serve in global bullies. If it's a category to strike it like it's the Middle East, and I think each generation we thinking we getting closer to the dream. I saw the hat and the vision Malcolm was hoping for, but brown water is flooding the south side. Oh, wait, that's a baby boy school to prison pipeline. It's drip, drip, dripping like we west to wet and strong to all our native sisters. Listen, we gon' get you back home. Solidarity to plant until they water back on. Death to water bottle CEOs and the greed that they spawn. This democracy's disease, but ain't nobody trying to see it. White supremacy proceed. We know Obama ain't defeated. A Wall Street checker can buy you a lot to me. You tried to bribe the rich and man just to buy up the block. Pharaoh tried to bribe the rich and man just to buy up the town. Making private deals and private rules with nobody around. It's for Union Hill and all the people who live in oppressed lands. Surviving or just taking a stand. Let them know. Talking about what happened in Minneapolis. That's right. When just last night we saw 
Richmond police cruisers driving through median and got sent by the grace of God it wasn't a Heather Heyer situation. Right. Amen. We have people who were arrested last night peacefully protesting, getting pepper sprayed. We have friends such as Roberto Rodan, though despite showing his press pass, though despite the governor in his ordinance saying that press is allowed, being pepper sprayed. Trying to do their job, protect having, the press, having guns pulled out on them right here in Richmond. If we can't trust you to talk about what's going on in Richmond, we can't trust you to talk about what's going on in Minneapolis. Yes, that's right. Speak. We can't talk about and ask for a plan. What? What you should be more honest and say you want another plan because organizers came to you when Marcus David Peters was killed. Yes, we did. And we have ministers here. We hear about Jesus speaking about the least of these. He says, when I was in prison, did you visit me? When I was in, and now we have people in prison who are denied their access to lawyers. For being released from the back of the prison and can't have their families locate them to bring them home in the middle of a pandemic. God damn us. Straight up. Tell them. Straight up. God damn us. Straight up. And let me tell you about the fact this has In my community last night, I heard 20 gunshots. Exactly. Nobody can. And it's not that nobody came, but when you scroll through your timeline and you see people being pepper sprayed, people being mowed over by vehicles, yep. we don't feel safe inviting you into our communities. And if we don't feel invited, how can we trust the police department to have transparency when you can't even see through the buildings, the windows of their building? That's right. We have to have an independent civilian review board. This has been a request for two years. With subpoena power. Princess Blank, the family of Marcus David Peace was promised a community meeting. With the subpoena And on power. that day, people found our mayor at a bar. Wow. Woo. That's crazy. Where is he now? Where is he now? Where is that notification? Rapper Hannick. I've seen there all the fucking time. How is he playing? Always wearing those white ass clothes. Talk about what's going on in Minneapolis. Expensive ass suits. I've got your elected officials here. Raise your hand if you have jurisdiction in Minneapolis. Talk to him, Alan. Talk to him. Raise your hand if you have jurisdiction in Richmond. Let's go. Come on. Raise your hand. 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 Start with Jerusalem before we can talk about Samaria. Oh. It's been two years. Why does it take fire? Why does, why does it take black businesses being targeted? Why does it take press conferences? There can be no reconciliation without justice. Why would I reconcile with someone who was doing damage to me? Yes! And still is. It is disrespectful to the organizing community. It is disrespectful to Marcus David Peters and his family and the memory of his death. Yeah. To act as if there has not been a plan for two years. That's right. To act as if there have not been meetings scheduled. That's right. To act as if just because you did a training doesn't mean that you enforce a training. That's right. We are here for solutions. We have been about solutions. That's right. We need leaders that are brave enough, that have the moral courage, as Dr. King talked about. That as Malcolm X said, it's not enough to put a knife in me and pull it out a couple of inches and call it progress. Come on, say it again. Wow. It is time for leadership in Richmond. We stand with Brother George Floyd and his family yes. and his memory. Yes. Minneapolis has to do what Minneapolis has to do. That's but right. Richmond has to do what Richmond has to do. That's right.